Welcome to the Business Leader Podcast. My name is Serena, and today our guest is a former Special Forces Lieutenant Colonel and the founder and CEO of Behavioral Science and Data Analytics Cybersecurity Company, CybSafe. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the Receive the Latest Episodes. We'd love to hear your feedback. Email questions at businessleader.co.uk to get in touch. And now it's time to welcome Oz Alashe to the podcast. Welcome, Oz. It's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Hi, Serena. Thanks so much for having me. So I just want to start off this conversation by asking you uh, a little bit about your journey and what inspired you to get into cybersecurity. Well, I guess I've got a, um, as many people in cybersecurity have, um, I guess, interesting uh, route into cybersecurity. The the beauty of the whole cybersecurity community is there really are people with a range of backgrounds that are finding themselves now currently um, looking at the security of networks, systems, data and devices. I happen to be a former soldier, as you suggested so in your introduction. I commissioned after university, I studied economics university, went to Sandhurst, which is where in the UK military we send our officers to train. I commissioned into the parachute regiment. And then from there, I thought I'd serve three or four years. I actually ended up serving in the military for 17 years. I retired, as you said, as a lieutenant colonel. And I was extremely unfortunate. I joined at a time where things were rather busy. We spent a fair bit of time away, but actually obviously learning a fair bit about not just Myself, not just about, of course, international security issues, but also actually about cybersecurity and indeed accessing or people trying to access networks and systems in order to use the information for things that are particularly unpleasant, or indeed us trying to look after information in order for us to be able to operate properly. So um, I got a really good feel for what people do and how people make mistakes they do online particularly as I was focused quite a lot on counterterrorism and national security for 12 of my 17 years of service. And so I really got to see how some of the, um, the bad guys, some of the unpleasant people around the world use access to networks and systems in order to trick people in order to generate funds, some of those funds being used, unfortunately, for terrorist activity. I also got to see um, some of the mistakes that they made that enabled us to find them. And of course, finding them was quite important if we were going to stop them doing what they were doing. So that was really my introduction to cybersecurity. I then left the military just over six years ago now, joined a group called Torchlight Group, where I was able to really focus on building capacity and capability overseas mainly, but sometimes in the UK and particularly around the areas of intelligence and cyber resilience. And I realized then, um, as I realized actually, and have, have really been reinforced my mind ever since, that when it comes to cybersecurity, people, process, and technology, those three areas are the holy triumvirate. Everybody pays lip service to the people component. And it was there that I realized that actually that was one of the things that needed to change the most if we were going to make society more secure. How do we get the human aspect of cybersecurity far more front and center when we're looking at cyber resilience? And that's what we do at CyberSafe. You mentioned there that your background, so you studied economics at uni, but then as far as I know, you went and did a master's in international relations. And then you had a lot of experience in counter-terrorism and understanding the way countries interact with each other and, and security around that. How do you think that relates to the work that you do now, specifically in cybersecurity? I think it relates in a few ways, um, uh, in, in many ways, you know, really useful. And in some ways, actually, it's the tangential stuff that has been helpful. So I studied economics. And of course, economics as a way of understanding how the world operates is always useful, um, regardless of what you go on to do. And as you said, um, Masters at King's, which was a fantastic thing to do, which I actually did as part of the service, um, was was really great. International security and uh, relations, just understanding really some of the big 
macro issues that are shaping the way nations operate with each other right now. And especially when you consider the, the geopolitical implications of things like cybersecurity, cyber resilience, and access to information and data, that has all been extremely helpful from a contextual perspective. But the truth is, it's really from a contextual perspective that it's been really beneficial. Um, understanding the context within which we operate, so it's CyberSafe focused on the human aspect of cybersecurity as one of a number of vendors with international customers and international stakeholders, and really trying to understand, for example, some of the regulations that we're, our, our customers are trying to operate with and the reasons for those regulations. I happen to find myself also on a number of advisory boards, including one to the UK government focused on cyber resilience alongside the Department of Digital, Culture, Media and Sport. All of those things have been made much more possible because I did understand, do understand, and indeed have the benefit of understanding the geopolitical landscape that much of this stuff sits within. Um, but anybody who says that they are experts in any of this stuff, I would suggest um, is a, is a, probably telling a porcupine. The fact of the matter is that I'm learning constantly. I'm understanding more and more and really having the context within which to set that understanding is really useful for me. So um, at CyberSafe, we are not focused on geopolitical issues per se. At CyberSafe, we're focused on issues that are faced by companies, organizations every single day, people like you and I every single day. But the reality is that some of the threat actors are, of course, driven by geopolitical actions. And many of the regulations that organizations face are also driven by a lot of things, including some of the geopolitical shifts. You mentioned that how some cybersecurity related threats are impacted by geopolitics. What kind of specific threats are particularly pressing? So one of the biggest threats today, and has been for a little while actually now, a few years, is ransomware. Um, it's one of the biggest challenges that um, many organisations face. In fact, there are organisations all across the UK, all across most nations that have fallen victim to ransomware. And for those of your listeners who won't know what ransomware is, this is really malicious software that is used to lock up files, so um, uh, encrypt files that mean that the owner of those files can't have access to those files until they pay a ransom to the criminal. So the cyber criminal ultimately using this to hold their victims to ransom. But the reason that that's important in the context of the geopolitical ongoings over the last few years is that many of these groups that conduct these ransomware attacks, they actually occupy spaces all across the globe. They're not in any one particular country, although in many different countries. They operate with relative impunity, cross-border, and it's really hard to be able to do anything about it. Um, it's not like the standard challenge that law enforcement faces all day, every day. So it can only really be dealt with with geopolitical cooperation. And if you consider the world that we live in just today, and again, not to date this conversation too much, but the reality is right now, um, we face a really fragmented geopolitical situation. And that hasn't happened overnight. That's been the case for some time. So whether it's the war in Ukraine and particularly the challenges in Eastern Europe right now, of course, the relationship that the West have with Russia, for example, um, the relationship the West has with a number of different other countries, all of these things make it much easier for groups to operate if nations aren't cooperating. And so that's a really good example in my mind of how cybersecurity challenges are absolutely shaped, influenced, if not even to some extent driven by the geopolitical context that surrounds them. Definitely. It makes cybersecurity and cyber threats that much more difficult because of the technology that's used and it can really sort of take place across borders and, and those threats can come up from anywhere in the world, really. 
Just to come back to your journey and how you've transcended between different sectors. I mean, I did uh, international relations as well when I was at uni, and I probably know very few people that then went on to do cybersecurity or work in the tech space in any way. So CyberSaper is a software as a service company. So how did that transition happen? What kind of exposed you to the world of tech? Yeah, so well, you use the word transcend. So let me correct that because I, I think of it more as muddling through rather than transcending anything that's Serena. The reality is that um, I've been extremely fortunate and indeed we're, we're just getting going. Um, I said to you that I left the military uh, just over six years ago. I retired uh, as an army officer, went to join Torchlight Group, amazing uh, time with some really great friends and really saw an opportunity. The opportunity being a challenge that was not being addressed. Everybody's paying lip service to the people components of cybersecurity. And as somebody who was responsible for building programs that were either about building intelligence capability or cyber capability, it didn't make sense for us to pay lip service to the people component. But what I hadn't realized was one of the reasons everybody's paying lip service to it is because very few people understand the research behind what it takes to change behavior online. So there was a behavioral science issue. Very few people have the data in order to be able to understand what works and what doesn't work, or indeed what's more likely to work and what's less likely to work. And so really those two things, understanding the science behind behavior change as far as cybersecurity is concerned, and understanding and having the data in order to be able to effectively deliver more effective interventions was the challenge. Um, I rather naively thought, well, it's a challenge, but it's a challenge that can't be that challenging to solve because people are solving and looking at this issue for all sorts of other issues. So when you look at health tech or wellness tech, my watch tells me when to stand up because it knows that I've been sat down for too long. That's a combination of the science behind what I should be doing and the data to help the device understand when to apply the intervention. The naive bit was was, of course, I had never really considered what it would take to build a software as a service company to do this effectively. Naivety when it comes to entrepreneurialism, I'm sure is a very good thing because it probably allows you to do the things that other people think about wisely and say, I'm not going to do that. That's going to be hard work. I didn't realize that. Um, the truth is, it's not that I didn't realize it was hard work. I just backed the team to be able to work through some of these issues. And that's exactly what we've done. So your question is, how and why did I go into SaaS or go into tech? But the reality is that was the only way to deliver the solution that we needed to deliver. Many people who become entrepreneurs, they set out to grow a tech company. I didn't set out to grow a tech company. I set out to solve this problem and I need to solve it at scale. We as a company need to deliver what we need to do at scale and software is the only way we can do it. More importantly, software is the right way to do it because actually we can then adjust the interventions and deliver those over time. And so that's what we do. Our, our software platform is used by hundreds of thousands of people all over the globe. Some of use them on the mobile device. Some use them on their desktop apps or web apps. And they get nudges and prompts and they get the information that they need and their security behaviors change and the organization can measure risk reduction. And again, we couldn't do that in any other way. You can't do that with a consultancy. You can't do that with just a training course. We needed to build an intelligent software solution. You really look at the sort of human focused aspects of cyber attacks and the behavioral social aspects that are involved in cyber attacks as well. But why do you think it's important to focus on human errors and the part humans have to play in cyber security and cyber attacks? I think that it's really important that um, we really kind of open our minds when we think about cybersecurity and cyber resilience. So by that, I mean, quite often, 
as a society, we will very understandably think about the technological aspects of cybersecurity. We'll think about the tech. We'll think about the devices. We'll think about networks. We'll think about really technical things because, guess what? It is actually a very technical field. There is a huge amount of play here, and the play is all really about networks, systems, devices, and data. All of those things, of course, are underpinned by technology, driven by technology. But the other thing that people sometimes miss, and this is where we need to open our minds, is that it's a system. None of these things operate in isolation. They operate as a system. And within that system, a really key, important part of that system are people. Ultimately, none of these bits of technology are useful without people. People make and enable this technology. People use this technology to do incredible things. And unfortunately, people attack this technology or they attack other people in order to get access to this technology. And that's the key thing. So at CyberSafe, we're focused on user behavior. The things that people like you and me do every single day whilst using our devices in order to live our lives or get our work done. Most of the time, that stuff goes without any consequence whatsoever. We use our devices, sometimes happily, sometimes rather frustratingly, sometimes effectively, sometimes less effectively, but ultimately we crack on with our everyday lives. Cybercriminals know this and they exploit things within our behaviors in order to get access to networks, systems, devices, and data. And then they use that networks, all those systems, all those devices or data to do whatever they want to do. Most of the time, it's ultimately about monetizing it, but sometimes it's about using the information or the access for other things too. We need to be aware of the fact that if we're interested in protecting that whole system, we can't ignore the people component. The human aspect is key, and that means that we must take the human aspect of cybersecurity seriously. In the context of businesses, what is the most common human error that occurs within businesses that allows attacks to occur? Well, that's a challenging one. The most common human error is a difficult one because one of the things you hear quite often is um, that the human aspect or human error is one of the most common causes for breaches and attacks. So it's a kind of a more general, but actually if you were to then break it down into what exactly is it that people do that is more most commonly wrong, the reality is the answer is spread. Over the last two and a half years, we have cataloged every single security behavior and related it to risk. So we've basically said, what are all of the different risks that organizations can face as far as cyber resilience is, is concerned, you know, and uh, malware uh, infection, identity theft, uh, data leakage, but literally a risk of ra- uh, a range of risks outcomes and then what are the security behaviors associated with those risk outcomes and that's now all cataloged in, a, in an open source research project called the security behavior database and there are nearly 80 different security behaviors that basically relate to those risk outcomes they're not all as important as every um, one and indeed actually for you and i as individuals they're not all things necessarily that we should or shouldn't do but the point is there's a real range there are some really common things that ultimately if we could just get everybody to kind of take these behaviors seriously we would significantly reduce the types of breaches that take place. Good examples are using a decent password or passphrase, ideally, so that ultimately people are not having to reuse those and those things therefore being easy to compromise. Checking people's privacy settings on their social media accounts. You'd be amazed at how many criminals basically just get all the information they need in order to basically create a phishing campaign against you simply because they were able to see information you probably didn't want them to see in the first place through your social media accounts. Being careful about what links you click on when you get emails, if you weren't expecting it, if it looks something doesn't look quite right, if um, ultimately it's asking you to do something that you 
wouldn't necessarily do or asking you to do something with a sense of urgency that you wouldn't necessarily expect. You know, clicking on emails is a really normal thing. That's what links and emails are for. But ultimately, we know that criminals use those things against us. So those are really good examples. Changing the default password on your Wi-Fi router at home. Now with so many people working at home and using their own Wi-Fi devices at home, not realizing that if they haven't changed the default password, unfortunately, that might be a way of compromising their particular network and therefore having access to their devices. So that's just a range of things. But like I said, there's actually about 80 different security behaviors, but they're not all as important as each other. And the ones I've just called out are some of the more common and more important ones. The things that you've mentioned there, you know, a lot of people would say that that could potentially be resolved by training in the workplace, especially in a business context. But is that the end of it? Is training the solution to it or does it go beyond that? So, so, you know, I'm I'm sad to say that training is part of the problem um, in this regard. And it's a bold statement, especially for an organization that actually has a component of training, in inverted commas, within our platform. But the reality is training is part of the problem. I'll tell you why. Training helps influence your knowledge. And if you're fortunate, your understanding. But the understanding bit is not guaranteed. The knowledge bit, if it's good training, genuinely, genuinely is. I probably shouldn't eat as many biscuits as I'm going to eat today. I know I shouldn't do it. My knowledge is not the issue here. My behavior is not determined by that particular piece of knowledge. As security professionals, we often default when we're thinking about the human aspect to the answer must be training. Train people and they'll know more. Most people don't need more training when it comes to security. They need help and assistance. Like I said, my watch tells me by buzzing and sending me an alert when I should stand up because I've been sat down for too long. I know I should stand up periodically. I know that walking around is good for mobility and, of course, good for blood circulation, but I can do with the nudge and the prompt. This is why I think it's really important that if we're serious about addressing this particular issue, we need to get more scientific and we need to use the data more. And neither the science nor the data suggests that training is the answer. We need to do other things. As we've sort of mentioned, a lot of what will stop the most common thing that causes cyber attacks, which is the human errors involved in that, requires people to really be aware and understand of how people are trying to earn their trust or get them to click on links and emails or, you know, these various phishing techniques. So if it isn't just training, what more can businesses do to protect themselves from cyber attacks? So one thing that mustn't happen, which sometimes does happen, is that people mistake what I've just said for training is important, don't do it, throw it out the window. That's not what I'm saying at all. It is important to train your people. It is important to give them the tools. So that's the understanding, the information that improves their knowledge so that they can also take their place or at least understand why other things are important for them to do. And therefore, training is just one small part of the things that need to be done. An organization that wants to genuinely reduce risk that they face as far as their users are concerned will make sure that people have the right information. Therefore, they talk about the training or, or, or the other ways of providing information that aren't training related, but they still impart information. They will also make sure that people have the tools that they need to help them. This idea of help is really important. We see a 67% increase in the number of people who change the default password on their Wi-Fi router at home because they were given a nudge, a prompt, an alert at the right time. The right time is actually, for most people, when you're near your Wi-Fi router and ideally not too busy doing something else. 
So the question then comes, well, when is that time? Because it's different for every single person. And therein is one of the issues and one of the reasons why technology is so important. Personalizing these interventions, that's the scientific word for what these nudges and prompts or alerts or indeed bits of training are, they're interventions. Personalizing those to individuals is really key. You see a significant increase in the number of people who get help. So organizations who want to reduce risk should look for ways to help their people in a way that's personal to them. That means not just talking to them about work and why cybersecurity is important at work, but help them understand it in the home context, their personal context too. It means not just giving them training and testing them to see whether they got the answer right, because that addresses the knowledge bit. But remember my biscuit story, it doesn't stop me eating the biscuits. Also, provide the nudges or the prompts at the points that they need it. And if it's about changing a password, maybe provide the nudges and prompts to show you whether they've done it. If it's about, or maybe have a data integration that will tell you whether they've done it. If one of the behaviors that's important to you is changing the default password of their Wi-Fi router, again, nudges and prompts will make a difference there. There are so many different ways in which we can encourage people, but also help people to be more secure. And that's the key thing here. And actually, it's not just for organizations. I mean, I believe this at a national level as well. And we're seeing these conversations being progressed, albeit much more slowly at a national level than at organizational level. Organizations have to do the right thing. They are being breached. They're being held to ransom. They are being fined. They're also, of course, wanting to do the right thing by their customers and by their people and look after the data properly. But we can do so much more in this space. I think it is really important to sort of bring up that psychological aspect of even if you have all the right information and you know all the answers to things, I think a lot of people know that they should be changing their password, for example. And a lot of people know the textbook ways of stopping a cyber attack happening or being vulnerable to a cyber attack. But then it's another thing actually doing those things because they're preventative. And, you know, if something hasn't happened yet, it's very difficult to be scared of it or have the motivation to prevent it. That's exactly right. Yeah. It hasn't happened to me itis. Organizations need to do more than train their people. They need to help their people. That's the key thing. If if organizations just rely on training, then they might might improve head knowledge, but it won't necessarily impact the security behaviors. And there's ultimately security behaviors that determine what risk you carry. If people don't actually know what to do, but behave securely anyway, then you actually will be in a better place as an organization. Likewise, if people know everything they need to know about cybersecurity, get all of the answers right after all of the training that you've given them, but don't change their behaviors, you are at just as much risk as you were before you wasted that time on training. So it's important to train, but it's important to help as well. And actually, that's one of the things that we see as most effective. Individuals, most of whom don't really get that excited about cybersecurity, most people living their lives, using technology to have their best lives, hopefully, and to do their best work, hopefully, in both of those cases, they don't consider themselves security professionals or people who are responsible for cybersecurity. We know that everybody has a responsibility, but we also know there's no point in trying to convince everybody that cybersecurity is the thing that they should be spending all their time thinking about. So how do we help people in that context? And that's one of the things that we've seen work particularly effectively with our software platform. Since the pandemic, obviously, working from home has become a bigger thing. And as a result, cyber attacks have become more common. What kind of implications have you witnessed the pandemic and working from home and flexible working and that change in work culture have on cyber attacks and how frequent they are? So um, there has been a shift, actually, and there has been a number of changes. So before the pandemic, cyber criminals were criminals and still did what they did. They were keen to access, like I said, network systems, data devices. They were keen to make sure that they could do so with relative impunity, i.e. do so and not get caught. That was key for them. And they were also keen to do it as frequently as possible because actually 
you know, that's where the money is, isn't it, Your Honour? As the bank robber said to the judge when asked why he was robbing banks. They saw that as the way of them getting access to the information. The pandemic actually increased the opportunity for them. People were working from home, are indeed still often working from places other than one set physical location in the office. And people have become increasingly reliant on digital devices and communications. And so actually, there's just even more information for them to impersonate. There's even more information for them to intercept. There's even more opportunity for them to effectively interrupt people's lives. And of course, People are also expecting communication from a variety of different areas. We saw when the pandemic kicked off, and we've seen it continue all the way through, that there was a real spike in the number of cyber criminals using uh, information about the pandemic, information about deliveries, uh, information about working conditions, information about travel. All of these things provide opportunities for criminals to effectively pretend to be something that they're not so they can have access to information or devices that you don't want to give them access to. And that hasn't slowed down since the pandemic. So it was happening beforehand, but it was absolutely driven and accelerated during the pandemic. And of course, it's here to stay technically, because guess what? We're not going to use technical devices any less. And so, you know, we're ultimately going to continue to communicate with ourselves digitally. And as society digitizes and becomes increasingly interconnected, these things will continue. And so we've seen criminals really seize upon that. As I said, the rise in ransomware is another example, but I would argue that the rise in ransomware was going to continue anyway. What's now become much more clear and brought to light is that as individuals, people who are working in the office one minute, in the home office the next minute, traveling and maybe working from a cafe or indeed another location another minute, or just engaging on technical devices and from a variety of different places, it's really hard to stay completely attuned and avoid every single scam or attack. It's really hard and criminals know that. The thing with cyber attacks and cybersecurity is that there are quite a lot of variables within them which are ever-changing and so naturally it means that the cyber attacks also evolve over time which makes it probably a lot harder I imagine for organizations to be able to protect themselves from it and really see what the future looks like in terms of it because technology is constantly changing, geopolitics is constantly changing And yeah, the world around us essentially are changing, like the pandemic being something that was incredibly unprecedented, which impacted it. How does the future of cyber attacks look essentially to you? Is it something that you're able to predict or not really? Yes, I was going to say, Serena, um, I, I, would be a, I would be a very wise man if I was able to predict the future of cyber attacks. Well, I'll certainly share what I think we are seeing and what we may see in the future, but recognising that none of us have a, have a crystal ball. One thing I would say before I go on to that, though, is it's really important that we don't make this thing bigger in our minds than it is. It is a huge challenge, but most organisations haven't addressed the fundamentals, and the fundamentals will significantly reduce the chance of them falling victim to a breach. So if we're not careful, what we can do is we can actually spend a fair bit of time focused on the fact that, wow, the geopolitical situation is such, and some of these cyber criminals are ultimately backed by governments, and they do X, and really, what hope do we have? Because so much is changing all the time, and ultimately, and none of those things are incorrect, but they're missing a really important fact, which is that that's not what 90% of organizations fall victim to. 90% of organizations fall victim to a breach that has ultimately occurred because they haven't looked after their information properly. They haven't put the right systems in place in order to understand where their important data is. 
They aren't addressing the human aspect. They're not training their people. Or if they are training their people, it's just tick box training and they're f- providing fishing simulations, which they know deep down in their hearts doesn't make any difference, but they're not doing anything about it. Do you see my point? And so actually it's really important that we recognize the bigger macro picture, absolutely recognize that society is increasingly digitized, interdependent, and of course, increasingly interconnected. And therefore with that comes a challenge but we don't allow that to distract us from doing the fundamentals. We've got to do the fundamentals. And that's what most organizations and most of the businesses who might be listening to this really need to work out. How can I do the fundamentals? And here's the thing. The fundamentals aren't difficult. They're fundamentals. You can get help do those really quickly. You don't even need to spend that much money. The UK government, for example, has put out loads of information about helping organizations do the fundamentals. Right. So notwithstanding everything that I just said there, What's happening in the future? The big question. Um, what are we going to see? Well, actually, we will see cyber criminals continue to try to trick people, to convince people to do things they wouldn't otherwise do. And there are things that are taking place or happening, developments happening that are going to make that much easier. Deep fakes, and we're already seeing deep fakes being used for um, recreational purposes. Uh, people are being quite funny with them online right now. People are using deep fakes in order to, uh, just as a novelty factor, but it's only a matter of time before criminals use these deep fakes as another tool in their box to convince people to give them access to things that they wouldn't otherwise give them access to. This is really important because actually, as we all spend more time on screens trying to you know, communicate with each other or engage with each other, it's going to be easier for us to potentially fall victim to things like that. What are we going to do about it? That's one thing I would suggest we might see with many of the attacks taking place. One of the other things that we might see, we're seeing it across society, of course, in general, with the increase in cognitive computing technology that's used in order to improve the way that our technological systems operate. We are seeing artificial intelligence or machine learning as a subset of that being used to help us be more effective. Guess what? Cyber criminals will be using exactly the same technologies in order to help them be more effective, to scan ports far faster, to understand where vulnerabilities abilities are to crack passwords that ultimately have taken a really long time to be able to crack because they were quite good will be cracked much faster so we're going to see this constant yin yang of technologies technology is neutral the way it's applied is of course what determines whether it's good or for bad and we're going to see that continue without a doubt i would suggest and i would say this wouldn't i that as our businesses continue to evolve and hopefully grow but ultimately depending on the economic situation in some cases will grow in some cases will shrink we'll see increasing people challenges increasing people challenges some of those challenges are about how we um, have enough people who understand cybersecurity in order to help us protect our organizations but some of those challenges will be how do we look after our information with people leaving our organization and going with it and some of those challenges of course will be how do we make sure that the people who stay in our organization are doing the right things behaving the right way in order to reduce the risk for the organization That is not going to change. It's here with us today, but we're going to see that accentuated over time because, as I said, as criminals understand that the way to attack systems is not to attack the system. Compromise the individual. Compromise the person. That's the fastest way. It's important to remember exactly what you said, which is ultimately, even though it seems like a really big problem and it seems like something quite daunting and scary, it boils down to essentially you're not making yourself vulnerable to those attacks in the first place. And really the control is in your hands if you just take the right steps to protecting yourself ultimately. Our listeners will find that information incredibly useful. Thanks, Oz. I just want to come now to asking you a bit about how you have grown uh, your own business, but also you've recently 
achieved $22.4 million in funding for CybeSafe. I just want to find out a little bit more about what your journey was like to achieving that funding, whether you have any tips or information for our listeners on how to achieve a fun- funding effectively. Again, uh, advice and opinions are falsely uh, sometimes overly uh, conflated. So, so I do I do caveat what I'm about to say with, of course, the fact that um, these are really my opinions based on the experiences that we've had, and really everybody will need to take it and apply it to their own unique circumstance. It was actually $28 million we raised at our Series B, which is closed, led by Evolution Equity Partners, which was an incredible VC fund that really does deliver incredible technologies into the marketplace or support incredible technologies into the marketplace and back really great founding teams. And so we were really delighted to have uh, Evolution Equity Partners lead our Series B. And we've learned lots on the journey um, as we've gone and, and built CybeSafe. We're still an early stage company and we're fortunate because things are going well. But the reality is that we haven't got everything right. Of course, we haven't. No business ever does. And so we've learned quickly from those mistakes. And the first thing I would maybe offer to anybody who's considering growing their business and particularly growing their business with VC funding, because it is actually quite different. You don't have to raise money. Investment is not the be all and end all. In fact, many people grow amazing businesses without raising money. But actually, in our particular space, it's really common in the tech sector because what we really need is a, a mass of people with talent in order to build and ultimately need to invest. And as you know, many of the returns come later. So we've been really fortunate, but we've stayed focused on what we believe are the things that matter understanding the market, solving the problem, and building great technology. If you set out to raise money, you may raise money, but ultimately, you may not. If you set out to do those things, understand the market, solve the problem, build great technology, then our experience is that the best investors will find you or certainly be interested in you when you are introduced to them. Because you understand the market, you're solving a problem, which means you're probably generating traction and you are building incredible technology. And ultimately, that's what they're investing in, the opportunity to develop this market. And so that would be my first bit of advice. And that for us stood us in really good stead through our Series A and, of course, through the Series B as well. We've taken advice from lots of different places, recognize that some of the advice will be great advice, some of the advice will just be opinions, and ultimately then use it accordingly. But realize that ultimately every single business is different. And therefore, just because the book says X or person Y says Z doesn't mean that actually you need to do it. You need to then apply that to what's maybe the context of your own business. And I haven't always got that right, certainly. Surround yourself with really great people really great other leaders. And in our particular case, we've got an incredible executive team. We've got a super bright team of everything from software engineers, behavioral scientists, data scientists, salespeople, marketers, the lot. I mean, ultimately at CybeSafe, this is really important. The way we build our products and the way we sell it and go to market is key. And then in our particular case, build a tech company that deserves to exist. And so those are the two things that for CybeSafe we're trying to do. Fundamentally transform the way society addresses the human aspect of cybersecurity, build a tech company that deserves to exist. What does a company look like? that is truly diverse? What does a company look like that ultimately invests in its people and every single person there knows that they're valued? What does it look like for a company to be really clear upfront about its objectives with everybody, investors, stakeholders, customers, people who work in the company? All of those things we believe help us deserve to exist rather than just exist. And if we do that right, we won't just make society better from a cybersecurity perspective, we'll make society better full stop. We will make things better. We will spin people out who go on to do great stuff. We will ultimately, like I said, be a tech company that deserves to exist. So that's a few things I would throw out there. And all of those things I think helps with our investment round. That's the truth because we've got great customers and great customers mean that investors are interested. And actually, more importantly, great customers give us feedback, help us understand where we're not performing and we can improve on the basis of that. That's really good advice, especially kind of this idea that it's really important to focus on 
the goals of your your business and and really defining what your value is in the space that you exist in because it sounds as though you have a very clear idea and clear definition of what you guys stand for and why you exist in the first place which i think is very important for a variety of reasons but especially in the context of funding it's interesting kind of hearing that you feel as though that's really important in that case as well yeah, I think it really is. Um, we've got incredible investors. We've been so well supported and we've learned a lot. And unfortunately, not all investors are great, but the majority of them are. And it's much easier for them to understand and indeed you to understand whether they align with your belief if you're really clear about what those beliefs and values are. Be really clear about those beliefs and values up front and find investors who align with your beliefs and values. Definitely. That's really great advice. Thanks, Oz. Now, I just want to ask you a few questions about your own personal leadership style and technique. How would you describe your your own leadership style? And do you feel as though it's sort of changed as you've grown as a business at all? <laughs> um, it's a difficult question. I think asking somebody to describe their own leadership style is, is like being surprised if somebody writes a book and they don't make themselves sound like a legend. You know, it's everybody does. And the reality is that my leadership style has definitely, I suspect, changed as I've grown as a leader. You know, I was really fortunate in that I um, commissioned into the British Army. I served for 17 years. I served amongst the most incredible group of people where leadership was displayed at all levels at all times. I got examples of and have seen examples of good leadership and bad leadership. And I was able to forge my own way and learn my specific leadership style and techniques, recognizing that it will evolve depending on the context within which you lead or the thing that you're trying to do or achieve. Because ultimately leadership often, more than often, in fact, I struggle to think of a time when leadership is not associated with achieving something, achieving an aim, an objective, a project, a, a, a something. So that has evolved over time. And so therefore, as a business, it has evolved because, of course, what it took to lead a business of three or four people is different to what it takes now to lead a business of nearly 100 people. There's you know, 90 of us at the moment. And so uh, that has had to evolve. Everything from kind of the beginning where you do everything and you are aware of everything and you are involved in everything to um, a situation now where, as I said, we've got an incredible team of leaders. And I personally and we as an organization truly believe that leaders create leaders. So ultimately, everybody at CyberSafe leads something. Some people do projects, initiatives, teams, departments, but ultimately everybody's responsible for leading something. And therefore we get to develop each other and bring each other on. And because we rely on, as most high performance teams do, a really safe space where people can give feedback. It's my role and responsibility as a leader to create the conditions for other people to succeed. And that's all you do as a leader, if you're to boil it down to something. Create the conditions for other people to succeed. If you do that, then actually as a leader, you are much more likely to be effective. So uh, at times it's consultative. At times it's uh, it's relatively directive. At times it is absolutely stepping back and accepting that I have no say in this whatsoever. I'm just here to contribute my view, just like everybody else. I am not the decision maker. Somebody else is in this room is the decision maker or on this call or on this screen is the decision maker. And at times it's ultimately to do the hard work behind the scenes so that somebody else doesn't have to so they can do the other stuff that they're much better at and all of those things all of those things blend into what i think are just the various facets of leadership but like i said if you to boil it all down it's about creating the conditions for those you lead to succeed and i think it's also about recognizing that if you truly are a leader that is not something that is appointed it is something that other people determine somebody points you a manager but other people determine whether you're a leader 
and therefore you can probably gauge how you're doing and I certainly every so often gauge how I'm doing by how much of a leader people consider me to be. Yeah it is a difficult question to to answer about yourself but I guess that it might have been easier for someone in your team to answer but you've answered that really well and and also hearing your perspective on on what makes a great leader is really enabling your team to be the best that they can and and also giving up some of your power to them or giving up some of the responsibility to them and really trusting them to make decisions and that can be incredibly empowering for them is a really important thing to remember as a leader. I think that's exactly right. You know, again, you know, responsibility is key. Power, this idea of giving up power, again, we've got to be careful with it. Of course, as a leader, you do have power in inverted commas, but but actually it's it's really only insofar as those that you lead enable you. Because remember, there is not a single leader that can achieve what they need to achieve without their team. By definition, you wouldn't be a leader if you didn't need your team. And more importantly, if the thing that you were doing didn't require a team of which you're just a part. So um, as a leader, it's just a role within the organization. It's an important role, a very important role. We've got to invest in our leaders. The military does that extremely well, extremely well. If there's one thing I've really benefited from or taken, it's just this investment and this time to think about leadership. Most organizations have never given their people the time to think about what it means to lead or indeed even to be led. And actually, if you don't give people the time to think about it, you can't be surprised if it doesn't improve. Yeah, that makes complete sense. Thanks, Oz. Unfortunately, we're coming to the end of the podcast, but we finish every podcast with a segment called Answer the Internet. And this is where we scour the internet for the questions that the public needs the answers to. And this question is from Reddit. And it's from a user called The Wet Napkin. And they ask, why aren't cyber attacks something worthy of a declaration of war? Wow, that's a great question. Why aren't cyber attacks something worthy of a declaration of war? Um, I think one of the biggest challenges with cyber attacks and any form of declaration, let alone a declaration of war, is attribution. In order to declare war on another nation, you have to, one, have a really clear view in your own mind about what it is that has triggered that war or that declaration and the actions that are going to follow, which of course are going to be extremely costly for you as they are for them. I'm going to be really clear about that. And actually, of course, in the um, context of the international community and international law, you need to be able to justify any form of armed conflict, let alone um, the armed conflict of war. And justification and evidence really ultimately bring us back to this idea of attribution, which is extremely difficult to do when it comes to cyber attacks. That said, I'm not sure that I would say that we will never see cyber attacks leading to a declaration of war. But I do think that goes some way to explain why we haven't seen it in the way that we do now. How can you be sure that attack came from that individual or that group? And then how can you be sure that that group or that attack has done that on behalf of X nation state? Because ultimately, that's what you go to war against most of the time. Stand fast, the war on terror, which most people may remember, which of course was not quite against nation states, but ultimately um, still had a, still had a target. So I think it's challenging. I think attribution when it comes to cybersecurity and cyber attacks is really hard. And as a result, it's not say it will never happen, but I do recognise that it's not the thing that we see very often. Yeah, that's a really interesting answer. Thanks, Oz. We ask all of our guests on the podcast this: What makes a great business leader to you? Mm. Um, well, I kind of touched on this a little bit earlier on because I think some of it is actually not just about business leaders, but leaders in general. Um, I think business leaders are just happen to be leaders in the context of, 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 of a business. So I personally believe that a great business leader understands the market extremely well. 
They understand their offering and the problem that they solve extremely well. And then they understand themselves and their team extremely well. And they recognize that their role in the whole plan and the whole plan requires the whole team, but they recognize that their role in the whole plan is to create the conditions for other people to succeed. It's not for them to be successful. It's not for them even to be a leader. It's for them to create the conditions for other people to succeed. And other people decide whether they are a leader. And indeed, the difference between leaders and managers we talked about earlier on, or at least I touched on the fact that there was a difference. So um, for me, I think that's, that's what I would look at for in a great business leader. Do they understand the context? Do they understand the problem that's being solved? Are they really aware of the offering? And indeed, do they have a deep understanding of their people? And are they creating the conditions for their people to succeed? As much as you can simplify something as complex as this question, if they're doing all of those things, I think for me, you've probably got the makings of a great business leader there. Great. Yeah. Those are really important points to remember. And finally, do you have any last words for our listeners today, Oz? Wow, thank you. Um, no, it's been lovely doing this. Thank you so much. And um, one for asking me such pleasant questions and two also uh, just rate hearing some of the things that your listeners think about. All I would really add is don't be overwhelmed by the challenges that are often associated with cybersecurity. Cybersecurity is this extremely important subject. It's an issue that underpins everything we're doing in society. There's no way that we're going to continue to digitize without this becoming even more of an issue. But for most of our organizations, the things that we need to focus on are actually relatively, I don't want to use the word basic, they're the fundamentals. And so as a listener to this podcast, as a business leader or business owner, think about the fundamentals and ask yourself a simple question, which is, am I doing everything I need to do in order to protect my networks and systems and data? And if the answer is not, then there's help you can get. And like I said, that help is not actually even expensive if indeed it costs you anything at all. Don't forget the people component. Your people are important. The criminals know that. You know that. So help your people. That means don't just force them to do terrible training. Give them actual genuine help.